Colossians, in the very beginning of the letter, Paul praises this little church for their faith, hope, and love. I swear I'm having entire conversations in my head like, wow, uh, is that it? Did you get a Holden? Okay. Oh, you know what? I need to go back and try again. Now do it. Let me join there, yeah. A little more to the left, a little more to the left, a little more to the left, a little more to the left. Keep going. Keep, or, yeah, there you go, yep. Look at you. Great. I'm just going to talk now, and we'll see how that works. Paul praises this little church in Colossians for their faith and their hope and their love. And then he prays that there would be an increase... Yeah, Holden, go to the left. The left, there we go. Now go to the bottom right and blow it up. Everybody look at Holden. Turn around and look at Holden and smile at him. Okay, let's start again. In the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul praises the church of Colossians, the Colossi church, for their faith and their hope and their love, but then he pairs that with a prayer that they would increase in their knowledge and their wisdom and their understanding. In fact, Paul makes a big deal of this theme using words like know, understand, comprehend multiple times throughout this letter. And in chapter 3, Paul is just going to go wild on this theme of knowing and understanding. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will also share in his glory. In these little verses, Paul makes three claims. First, we have participated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus by faith. By faith, we have become participants in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a doctrine that we call union with Christ. We are by faith in Christ, one with him. Responding to the gospel of Jesus with faith unites us to Jesus. By faith, we become participants in his life, in his suffering, in his obedience, in his righteousness, in his death, in his resurrection, and now in his glorified eternal life. Whatever has happened to Jesus has mysteriously but truly also happened to me and to you by faith. And we remember this and signify it by our baptism. Our baptism is our sign that we have died and been raised with Christ, just like my wedding band is a sign of my union with Steph. Paul says, we have become participants in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in those verses, since you have been raised to new life. 
He says, you died to this life. Second, Paul says that because I am united to Christ, my real life is with Jesus in heaven. In other words, I am in heaven now. Heaven is not the place that I am waiting to get to. Heaven is where I am now because my real life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says that my truest self, my real life, is in heaven right now. Heaven is not a place that I will get to. Heaven is what I experience now, which is why Dallas Willard says, the goal of the gospel is getting into heaven before you die. Think about how, think about how we use that word, real life. You leave vacation and you say, I guess we have to get back to real life now. When life gets hard, when something gets difficult, we say, wow, it just got real. We use this idea to explain the difficulties of our lives, the suffering that is, yes, real and painful and disappointing. But yet, that disappointment, that pain, that suffering, Paul says, is not my real life. My real life is hidden with Christ in God. My real life, my forever life, has already begun. I am already a citizen of heaven. I just happen to be waiting to get there. And if that is true, if I am in heaven now, our primary question should be, how should I live today? How should I live today? And the answer to that is, you live today how you will live forever. That's Paul's third point. Paul's third point Since I'm already in heaven, I live that way now. Since I'm already in heaven, I can live that way now. See, Paul tells us to allow our future to reverberate into our present. Paul says, since my real life is already happening, I should let that echo backwards into the now and live as if my future is already happening. This is what it means to set my sights on the reality of heaven. This is what it means to think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. See, as a follower of Jesus, I have been taught that heaven is not my destination, that heaven is my reality. And the way I live is to create small pockets of heaven in ordinary places now. Because heaven isn't a place that I'm waiting to get to, because heaven is a place I am now, listen to me, I am set free to live today as I will live forever, which means that the following words of Paul become true. This is what Paul is trying to paint a picture of, of what would it look like to live today like we'll live forever. And he says this, starting in verse 5. So, Put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Note, 
Christians are very good at protesting sexual sin. I do not see Christians protesting greed. And on the account of both, the wrath of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must now clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Look at what Paul is painting a picture of. Paul is saying... If the realities of verses 1 through 4 are true, then I set my mind on things of heaven. I keep my mind not on earthly things, but heavenly things. So I take off this wardrobe of earthly living and put on the clothes that I will wear forever. I put on the clothes that I will wear forever. But what is so fascinating to me about this text is that all of these things Paul roots not in our hearts, but in our heads. Paul tells us that forgiveness and rage and mercy and slander, all of these things, are not matters of how we feel, but of how we think, of how we decide. And this goes entirely against the grain of our culture because the grain of our culture has psychologized everything. Everything in our culture is about our feelings. Everything in our culture is about self-discovery of my feelings. And what Paul says is it doesn't matter how you feel. It matters how you think. Paul says, if I wait until I feel like forgiving someone, I will never forgive them. Paul says, if I wait until I feel generous, I will never be generous. Paul says, if I wait until I no longer feel like being angry, I will never get there. Paul says from the outset that we need to decide first to forgive. We need to decide first to live generously. We need to decide first to put away anger and let our emotions follow. And let our emotions follow. If I were writing this passage, if I were writing a passage, if I were writing to you about love and anger and hate and kindness and compassion and lust, I would write about your heart. Paul writes about our mind. Paul writes about our mind. And I want to unpack this idea of the mind just for a minute before I move on because I think it's that important. See, what Paul is pointing to is that God works through our mind to get to our heart and then to our body. 
God works through our mind to get to our heart and then to get to our body. And I want to talk about what it looks like for us to direct our mind toward the things that Paul is speaking of here. And I want to see if I can do so well. Because what I'm not saying here when I say you need to decide to forgive someone, I'm not saying your feelings don't matter. I'm not saying get over your baggage. I'm not saying emotions are unimportant. I'm not saying psychology is bad. I've been counseling multiple times. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I, what I am saying is that we may very often downplay the role of our minds in our spiritual formation to our detriment. To our detriment. Look at this quote from Dallas Willard. It's kind of long, but it's quite good. He says, The ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell upon. We are not totally free in this respect, but we do have great freedom here. And even though we are dead in trespasses and sins, we still have the ability to retain God in our knowledge if only an in, in an inadequate and halting manner. Paul, what Dallas is saying, what Paul is saying, is that our first freedom as human beings is to direct our thoughts in a certain direction to allow me that I have freedom, I have free will to direct my thoughts where I want them to go. Now, he acknowledges that we are not totally free in this respect. In general, our sin nature limits our ability to do this from time to time, does it not? I am far better at dwelling upon people's faults than I am on their successes. However, even then, I am given a free range to choose what to dwell on. But what I want to talk a little bit about is the allowance that God gives uh, to those of us in our community who are suffering mental unwell. Um, whether that's anxiety or depression or trauma from your past, that limits our freedom, doesn't it, to cause our thoughts to rest in a certain direction or to go in a certain direction and to those people, I want to remind you uh, that our prayer for you as a church is that you would find freedom and wholeness in Jesus who said that he is here to bring deliverance to the captives. And one of the things that Steph and I have begun to contend for in prayer for you, by the way, with the realization that if we aren't praying for you, who is? Um, what we've begun to contend for is more deliverance, not from ailments of the body, but from ailments of the mind. And just like ailments of the body, they can be healed in a number of ways. One, through the help of a professional. Two, through medication. Three, through the sudden and surprising intervention of the Holy Spirit. Or four, at death when we go to heaven. I'm not praying that you would die. What I'm praying for is that we would experience the freedom that Jesus promises, that you would experience the freedom that Jesus promises now. Now. And what I am saying to you is even with a mind limited by and constrained by uh, the diagnosable and chronic experience that you are having, you are still given a measure of power to direct your thoughts in a certain direction. And that said, 
So I'm kind of addressing those who have a real thing going on. Now let me talk to those of you who have an imagined thing going on. Because we are a psychologized generation, we come home at the end of the day and we feel sad and say, I must be depressed. Because we are a psychologized generation, we walk into a room full of people that we don't know and we say, I must have social anxiety. And I have a couple of problems with that. First of all, when you don't have something diagnosable and you use that term, it actually belittles the people who do have that thing. And in both cases, here's what's happening, especially when we feel sad and we say, well, I must be depressed. What we do is we allow a diagnosis to become our identity. And whether, your, whether what's going on inside of you is real or not quite that real, diagnosable or not diagnosable, we do not give mental illness, we do not give depression, we do not give social anxiety, we do not give insert here the ability to speak over us, our identity. And here's what happens when we do. Especially when I don't have something and I come home at the end of the day and I say, I must be depressed, I must be anxious. What I have just done is forfeit the first freedom that God gave me to follow Jesus. I have thrown up a white flag of surrender before I even got started. And in both cases, hear me, whether there's something diagnosable and real or there's something that you're kind of just making up because you need to have a pity party and I love you, but some of the people in my life that tell me they have social anxiety don't have it and there are some people in our community that do and it makes me mad when they tell me they have social anxiety because I just want to be like, get over it. You're just, young, you're just feeling young and nervous, not like incapacitated to engage with people. In both cases... When we allow our diagnosis to speak over us who we are, we forfeit the first freedom. And isn't that what the enemy wants? Isn't what the enemy wants for us to forfeit the first freedom that we have as followers of Jesus to direct our minds in certain directions over others? See, what I'm trying to help us see today is that there is a place for you in this spiritual family if there is something real and diagnosable, and we will walk alongside of you in that and pray for your deliverance. But in either case, if you're imagining it or just giving yourself the title or if there's something real, we want to contend to use as much of the freedom that we have been given that we can. Yes? So if, I, if, if this is 100% and right now I've got 10% because of what I'm walking through, I want to use 100% of that 10% of my freedom to follow Jesus. If I have 100%, I want to use 100% of the 100% to follow Jesus, and I don't want to self-limit that because I've had a bad day. That's idolatry. It is idolatry to say, I have depression when I don't. I want to use my first freedom as a human being. I want to exercise my free will by directing my mind toward what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. I want, what, I want to see what Paul says in, first, in Romans 12. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, if I had written that verse, I would have said, Be transformed by the renewing of your heart. But Paul says our minds are the first battleground. People in our community that are suffering some stuff, I'm trying to like walk the tightrope and I love you and my preference is for you. Okay, which is why I'm smacking around your siblings who are faking it. 
So how do we shape our habits of mind? If, if living heaven now is a matter of decision, is a matter of how I direct my thoughts, of where I place my mind, how do I discipline my mind, just like Zach trains his clients to discipline their bodies, um, how do I discipline my mind to kind of live heavenward and think heavenward and live today as if I would live forever? How do I experience the fullness of heaven now? How do I put off malice and rage and lying and anger? And how do I put on compassion and all the other cute things? It's a matter of disciplining our mind. And Paul names three ways to do that uh, here in Colossians 3. He says... Let the message about Christ, in all its richness, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says there are three disciplines that help us direct my thoughts in the right direction toward Jesus, toward heaven, to live today as if it is forever. First, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is the word of Jesus, is scripture dwelling inside of you? And is it doing so richly? Does scripture bubble up out of your mouth? Is it the way that you think? Does it pepper your language? Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly is actually two disciplines. One, it is the personal reading of scripture. It is the personal engagement. So listen to the Bible Project app. You know, listen to you version. Uh, listen to the, uh, the daily audio Bible. Read scripture. Engage a proverb a day or a psalm a day, something like that. But it is also the discipline of what we're doing right now. We let the word of Christ, because interestingly, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. When we hear and respond to the word of God as it is preached, we discipline our mind. Think about what's happening right now. I am not speaking to your heart. Your brain is comprehending things, and then it is sinking to your heart, and then out to your body. Our minds are are, are the battleground for transformation, our minds. So are our hearts and so are our bodies. We just got a lot of wars to fight. But Jesus has victory. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second, he says that we worship. This is interesting, by the way. He says that we worship. And this is interesting because a lot of us associate worship with the heart, not with the head. We worship and we say, I'm not quoting any of you, or maybe I am, and if I am, I love you. Uh, I don't do worship because it's about the feelings, right? So I will stand there, men do this especially, but some women, I will stand there and just let it happen, but I'm not going to participate because that's the touchy-feely thing. Um, Interestingly, worship is primarily a discipline of the mind that shapes the heart. It is not a discipline of the heart. And there's this long quote from Dallas Willard that I'm going to read you, and this is a snapshot of it, but he says, to bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God as he is presented in his word 
will have the effect of causing us to love God passionately, and this love will in turn bring us to think of God steadily. To think of God as he is, one cannot but collapse into worship, and worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration in the whole person. I'm going to read it again. It's, it's unbelievable what he's saying here. Worship naturally arises from thinking rightly of God on the basis of revealed truth confirmed in experience. We say flatly, worship is at once the overall character of the renovated thought life and the only safe place for a human being to stand. Hear this again. To bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God as he is presented in his word will have the effect of causing us to love God passionately, and this love will in turn bring us to think of God steadily, to think of God as he is. One cannot but collapse into worship, and worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration on the whole person. And I sent this to Julia, and Julia was like, yes, worship is the single most powerful force in sustaining restoration and completing it. It naturally arises from thinking rightly of God on the basis of revealed truth, confirmed in experience. Worship is at once the overall character of the renovated thought life and the only safe place for human being to stand. See, worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration in the whole person because truth about God enters my mind as I sing. It's extravagant. I'll never comprehend how the way that you love us. And so I'm comprehending that. And that truth sinks down into my heart and directs my heart to God. Your heart is always facing something. So it directs my heart to God and it gets out in my body and some brave few among us go, right? And it's suddenly all of that working together. Worship is not the, the task. It is not reserved for the feeling soft artsy types Worship is for the thinking conceptual types. It is for both. And by the way, when you measure worship by how you feel, you are categorizing the discipline incorrectly. It is not about how it makes you feel. It is about what it makes you think. Lastly, so we have word, we have worship, we have gratitude. And if you've been in our home, you know that we do not pray before we eat dinner. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to pray before you eat a meal. Just a habit that we've inherited from some cultural archetype of our past. However, in our house, what we, what we do is we go around and say what we are grateful for. And if you are practicing hospitality, especially toward people who don't know Jesus, um, pre- inviting them to just share what they are grateful for involves them in prayer despite themselves talk to Art and Pam about this. And by the way, you know some of this if you've been to one of our prayer nights where we do the texting with God exercise, right? So God, I am grateful for, and we say this thing, and then we listen for God's response. Gratitude rewires our brain. And when we are stuck in the muck of the ugliness of our life, and we kind of can't get out, when we, when we engage in gratitude, it builds us like a little ladder outside of the muck. And then what I can do is I can stand above the muck and observe it appropriately instead of being stuck down in it. And so in our home, when we are feeling overwhelmed, we play the gratitude game, which is let's go back and forth 
until we can say as many gratitudes as we can. Um, and that these, these disciplines of worship and word and gratitude, Paul says, by the way, Paul uses words like thankfulness and gratitude like four or five times in the book of Colossians, twice just right here. Earlier he said, when we are mature in Christ, we will overflow with thankfulness. By the way, not overflow with our sense of being right, but overflow with thankfulness. Paul says we practice gratitude. What do you think? What? No, it's, it's our... Who wants a sermon footnote? Okay, come on up here, Stephanie Tennant. All right. So, um, yes. Um, every once in a while. So what we're talking about today is disciplining our minds. But isn't it interesting how disciplining my mind involves me in community? Do you see what happened there? Do you, I mean, listen, I, I cannot love one another if there's not an another to love. And so we discipline our minds to live heavenly, and then what happens is we're called into community to experience that, because here's what heaven is. Heaven is one big, long party with everybody all the time. And so uh, as Steph and I were like doing some work to do this sermon together, and I said, oh, you're coming, we felt like there were some ways that God was kind of inspiring, especially my wife, to kind of speak into what's happening. So you have like a multi-application sermon, so you have plenty to do in response time. Um, but we wanted, once you have set your mind in the direction of community, what are some practical ways that you can do that too? So um, did that tee that up correctly? Sure. Okay. Are you doing all of this? Am I sitting down? What happens now? I don't know. Are they even on here? Yeah. Oh, they are. Oh, good. I thought my notes were gone. I was like, I want to be just going. So do you just want to handle this? Sure. Okay. Okay. I'm going to just, It'll be you quick. Know, I'm a lot quicker than he is. Um, talk slow just, though. I, okay. Talking slowly. Um, no, but as Kyle and I, and I t mentioned this a little bit in the reconnect for those of you that read them, that we just have been in staff meetings and some other times, just this idea of community has keeps coming up and just the realization that although we, um, I think enjoy each other and like seeing each other on Sunday mornings and saying, Hey, that there's just not necessarily a lot of depth of what's happening and a lot of actual sharing of life. And so as Kyle and I have been having some conversations, um, there's just a few things that we kind of wanted to maybe encourage, maybe just some things to think about. Maybe you're already doing them, but if you're not, maybe it would just be a little nudge to kind of say, oh, I could, I could do that. But um, the first one is honestly just taking the first step. I think Kyle talked a little bit about social anxiety and our fear of meeting new people, our fear of rejection. Um, and I think that is one of the most paralyzing things, especially honestly to people who are more millennial age and younger. Um, a lot of you, like life has been about being with people your same age and with a lot of like socially engineered um, settings where like you were with people your own age and you were kind of forced to do icebreakers and get to know them. And so the idea of just stepping out and saying um, hello to someone, of starting a conversation, of inviting someone to lunch can feel real scary. Um, and yet if we don't, then we're all just stuck. I said to Kyle, it's kind of like we're playing freeze tag, but everyone's frozen. <laughs> no one's tagging because everyone's like, well, I'll wait until you go ahead, you know, like I'll, you know, and so when people say to us, or if we hear, which we don't a lot, but once in a while we'll hear like, I just don't know anyone. And my question is always like, well, have you introduced yourself to anyone? Have you met anyone? Have you taken that first step? And that's not to say it's not hard. That's not to say it's not scary. Um, but if you don't, then, um, we can't ever get to know each other. So that was the first thing. Um, and that kind of goes along with that social anxiety. That's the second one. I just think we all have to own that it's uncomfortable to meet new people. Um, I think that we often say, like, I can't. I'm, I have social anxiety. Well, the reality is no one enjoys walking into a room where they don't know anyone. 
No one enjoys having to be around people. And some people really hate small talk. Like, I'm not a small talk person. <laughs> that is not my thing. Um, but you know what? If it helps me get to know someone, then it's worth it, right? Like, those couple of minutes of discomfort to maybe start a conversation with someone that could be a really great friend is worth those couple minutes. So just um, really thinking about, is that something that you could kind of step into? Um, and then I think another thing is that it just takes time. And sometimes our treasure, too. And I think that we um, are busy I think we all feel overwhelmed with how much we have to do in our lives. Um, ironically, I feel like every stage then has more. Just when you think you can't handle more, you, get, you have another stage where you have more to handle. But the reality is that to know people and to have community means that we have to give up some of our time sometimes. That it means that I, in particular, don't get to like be at home every night like watching Netflix as soon as Jack goes to bed. <laughs> Um, and it means that, like, I may have to, like, spend some time cleaning um, dishes up after someone comes over to have dinner because it was worth having them in our home. It was worth that time investing in them. Um, it may mean that we don't have quite as much money because we had dinner, so we, like, had someone over and paid for dinner for them. But I think that idea that, like, we need to be willing to sacrifice those. Um, and then um, the last one is just – I'm going to combine these two. Um, if you don't have quality relationships, it's because there's not quantity you can't build deep relationships quickly. So if we only have a couple minutes, like we're not ever going to go beyond that surfacey stuff. And so, and that's where circles kind of come in because that is an opportunity to get to know people better. Um, but I also think we have to press into vulnerability. And I think we have to own our stuff when we are in settings that it's appropriate. And we have to be able to share and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. Could you pray for me? Or hey, could you like just check in with me this week? I think um, sometimes... Um, I am burdened by the people that I know are walking through things and aren't telling anyone or maybe are telling me. Um, and so I think that, like, if we can press into that, and that's even something I've really had to learn, is to be able to say, like, I'm not okay because it's, I think, easy for me to be the one that feels like, oh, just come to me. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you and I'll pray for you. And then when I'm not in a great place, it's hard for me to reach out. But I think the Lord has really challenged me that if we can't press into those things together and if we can't all be vulnerable, then we can't really know each other. Um, and so my final question, um, and then I'll have Zach come up and do the um, response time, and he can pick from, from all this, but is who are you praying for in our church? Um, there are a lot of people in this community, in the spiritual family, that don't have any other family who would be praying for them. Um, you know, some of you do have godly families and parents who, like, lift you up in prayer, but a lot of you don't. And so, like, who is the Lord laying on your heart, and who are you praying for in our church that um, just you know, maybe maybe you know what's going on, and maybe you don't, but, like, the Lord has laid them on your heart. So um, those are just some of the thoughts that we had um, to just kind of encourage us to step into those things, and then I'm going to have Zach come up and do the response time. Hey guys, so one of the things that we like to practice here is not only hearing the word of God, the truth of God, um, and letting that sink into our brains. I think the way that we get it down into our hearts is to respond to what those words are saying to us. How do we actually act? So, so interesting, this sermon. I was Yesterday I was with Jenna, and I was talking literally about this topic, about the topics of anxiety and depression and diagnosable um, cases of that, and then... Um, I was listening to a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, and um, it has a lot to do with that. So um, that was really interesting. So that was definitely sticking out to me and how definitely a way that God is possibly speaking um, to me, to our community about, like, can we really start to question the feelings that we have? Are we walking ourselves through some, um, maybe even uh, if, our own personal behavioral therapy? Can we really kind of start to rationalize the feelings that we have 
and if we do come to a, a terms where we need some help, then we've got people in this around that can that can really help you. So um, the other thing was um, I couldn't help but think of um, uh, I've been reading this book too called the Jesus Creed, and what Jesus did is he took the Shema of Judaism and um, another part that's in uh, Deuteronomy, and he combined it and he said. Uh, what we need to do as Christians is to love our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul, and all of our strength. To love our God with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And what Kyle's sermon today is making me think, like, yeah, to, to love him, I need to think about him more. And when that gets there, that's I'm loving him with all of my mind. And when that sinks down into my heart, I can't love with all of my heart until I've contemplated him long enough. And I can't love him with all of my strength until my heart pumps that out into my body and into my muscles. And I can just physically overpower and will myself to act the way that God wants me to act sometimes. Um, And then all of my soul is just my life. Everybody can see that through me. And when I see that come through, when people can see that come through, I'm loving God with all of my soul and and passing that on to others. So, um, yeah, maybe you guys can think about that. How does, how does God, how, do you, how are you loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul?